Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In recent years, there have been a ton of alternatives to conventional cow's milk hit the market. Things like soy milk, almond milk, coconut milk. But the new frontier may be lab-made dairy, creating the proteins that make dairy, dairy, in a lab, and then using them to make cheeses and other products that never came from an animal. We spoke to Inya Radman. She's a molecular biologist and founder of New Culture, a company on the quest to make cow-free dairy. I think there's been a big hype, and to be honest, for a reason, and there should be around um, replacing meat in many different ways. And there are two key ways as consumers that people should be aware of is you when you try to replace meat product with a plant-based product, which is what you were describing with the Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger. And second is somewhat more challenging technically when you try to replace meat with a lab-grown or cell-grown, as we call it, meat product. And those would be the companies such as Memphis Meats or New Age Meats or Finless Foods for fish, creating real animal ingredients, either muscle or meat or dairy, but without animals. So we belong to that second category. So if you were to think of dairy products, you know, uh, for example, plant-based milks, uh, like oat milk, almond milk, soy milk. And we've seen with, with the consumer behavior, at least, that people have been quite happy with those substitutes for milk. But what we see, interestingly, is that not the same is true for cheese. Cheese consumption globally grows steadily, both of regular dairy cheese as well as the what, vegan cheeses, so plant-based cheeses. What turns out to happen is that, you know, cheese is this magical product that, um, that has very special properties, uh, special texture, special structure, special flavor, uh, stretchiness, mouthfeel. And we haven't, as a community, we haven't been able to, to make a really good, sustainable and tasty cheese with plant-based ingredients. Vegan cheeses are a little tough. I've had a few and there's some that taste pretty good, but it, it never uh, really is the same as that normal cheese. We really think that the only way to make good, tasty cheese is that it, it has to be cheese, which means it has to have dairy in it. If it has to have dairy, that actually means it has to have a crucial molecule, crucial component, which are the casein proteins found in milk and, and hence in cheese as well. So there, there are multiple problems there. First is that as simple as this, if product is not really tasty and it's not anything like cheese, people will not really want to buy it. Right, um, right. And that's what's happening. And then second is nutritional problem as well, is that, you know, these often lack any protein, really, these vegan cheeses. So so this is what new culture is trying to solve. We're really trying to crack the science, the molecular backbone of what is cheese and how cheese is made and what gives properties to cheese and what are the necessary molecules that we need to have um, that come usually from animals. So there at New it's Culture, you guys are, are focused on producing uh, casein specifically. And you guys have a mozzarella cheese that has been pretty successful so far in achieving some of the texture and the taste uh, so far. Tell us a little bit about the mozzarella that you guys have been working on. So I must say that that's like a proof of concept cheese we've been, we've been working on. It's far from, from our real product. But it's been, we've been working on that formulation to figure out how do you take casein proteins, which have to form these special structures called casein micelles. And how do you, so how do you take casein micelles and then 
how do you supplement everything else that you need, a fat and sugar? And how do you, you through, use traditional cheesemaking process to turn that into cheese and specifically mozzarella? So that's part of the work we've been, we've been uh, trying to crack because it's really important for us. We are a product company and we not only want to make, yes, we're making casein proteins, but we're actually making casein proteins in a very streamlined and specialized way for cheesemaking. So yeah, this is, we, we've been working on both sides and producing these casein proteins um, because this is really the technological challenge. How do you produce these proteins without animal now? So we use what's called microbial fermentation. Basically, we can brew, we can ferment microbes with, with sugar, with basic food stock for them. And, you know, we can make them churn our proteins of interest, which are caseins in our case. We're very early on. We're a very, very young company. So um, we, we, you know, we, we achieved key milestones. We show this is possible, but we're very far from from um, actually making mozzarella that we can <laughs> sell one day. Right. But this is, this is what we aim to do in, in the next few years. Um, we're explaining how this technology works, why it is safe. It is producing exactly the same proteins that, that the animal is producing, really. And yeah, I think this is the key to really having people open at least to, to trying our product and then deciding for themselves if this is better for them, as I said, on multiple levels. Right. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the science is very interesting. And I just really see this trend continuing. So Good luck on all of that, and we'll keep following this to see how this all develops, this new frontier of cow-free dairy. Inya Radman, co-founder of New Culture, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the future. Another interesting story this week. We all know that drugs are bad for you, but there's a hidden epidemic of chronic disease that might threaten cocaine and meth users in the coming years. This is all because of increasing signs of dangerous adulterants in these illicit drugs. Toxic, lab-made adulterants are becoming more common and becoming a problem. We spoke to Dan Vergano. He's a science reporter at BuzzFeed News for what to watch out for. Underneath the overdoses caused by opioids, there's been this surprising increase in uh, overdoses tied to meth and cocaine. So we have like a stimulant epidemic starting behind the opioid epidemic. And, uh, you know, the question is, what's killing all these people? Is it just using more coke? Is there fentanyl in the coke and the methamphetamines? And it seems like that is the case. Fentanyl, you know, is a, a deadly opioid. But there is some suggestion in data that was presented at uh, some scientific meetings in the last year that what's going on are there are more dangerous and just kind of strange interactions of these cutting agents that are in cocaine. They've been in there for a long time, but now we're seeing more of them, higher concentrations of them, and they are linked to health effects. So there's a lot of concern that essentially there's a hidden epidemic of, of both overdoses and chronic health conditions, uh, the things like organ failure and cancer and heart disease that, they, that are linked to these, these adulterants. It's sort of lurking behind everything else. Now, how are we getting word of this? From your article, there's been stuff that's going on in South Africa and South America that kind of points to this trend. That's where most of it's coming from. The testing that's done overseas is funded by the State Department. And what they're seeing there are effects largely tied to smoked cocaine to crack in places like South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, and so forth, uh, where the adulterant levels are already really high. And it's been that way for a, a long time. These deworming agents, uh, levamisole, which kills your immune system, uh, phenacetin, this painkiller that's you know linked to heart disease and cancer, uh, leaky blood vessels. That's been there for like a decade. And so what they're seeing is in some data from about six U.S. states, 
these levels creeping up in cocaine and meth here, and also heroin as well. And what it seems to be tied to, whereas some of the old cutting agents, you know, sugar, aspirin, or whatever, are just for bulk, you know, to, to bulk out the, the dose that's sold to people. These ones seem to uh, be picked for their chemical uses. They extend highs. They make the effect of the drugs last longer. So it's a drug market responding to demand, trying to make things sort of have a bigger kick. And why are things different now? I mean, all of this has to do with Mm -hmm. chemistry and obviously cutting it in the lab and whatnot and then distributing it out. So what's changed for this? This is another unforeseen effect of globalization. Essentially, the drug cartels in places like Colombia and Mexico, Peru, that handle the cocaine are becoming more professional. You know, it's basically the knowledge of the chemistry that's bringing uh, K2, you know, synthetic cannabinoids to the U.S. It's bringing fentanyl into the heroin supply. It's uh, producing methamphetamines on the industrial scale in Mexico instead of, you know, the breaking bad kitchen chemistry is now reaching into cocaine. And so they're able to manipulate things in wild ways. One of the strangest products they talked about at this meeting was the pink cocaine that's actually yeah. uh, synthetic mescaline. I mean, that's a hallucinogen. It's not even a stimulant. So you're just getting all this kind of wacky things. And also these chemical byproducts of the more complex chemistry are also showing up as adulterants in the drugs. You mentioned Breaking Bad and the famous drug in there was the blue meth. You know, Walter White mixing up some new thing because he was, you know, chemistry teacher and he knew how to make it super good. Uh, But this is kind of on the wackier side where they're just mixing a bunch of stuff, a lot of synthetic stuff comes out a different color and then you sell it, you market it and you get it out there. Right. It seems to be a mixture of both better chemistry and sort of worse chemistry. I mean, they have the product, they adulterate it, it comes out funny, but what the hell, they're going to sell it anyways, and they might as well market it as something. We've seen in the past with drug fads, you know, things like Grey Death sold as an exotic heroin. But this is like, according to the people observing this, is becoming more of a a trend south of the border and not north of the border. And, you know, people aren't seeing this everywhere, and the adulterants aren't tested for, which is the real problem is, you know, the cops make prosecutions based on the main drugs, not on the adulterants, so they don't test for it. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, my favorite story. We get to talk to one of the best skip tracers in the world. A combination bill collector, bounty hunter, and private investigator. A skip tracer finds people and things that have disappeared and don't want to be found. We spoke to skip tracer Michelle Gomez, who specializes in hard-to-locate recoveries, for how she got involved in the world of skip tracing, and some of her methods to hunt people down. And most people would be surprised to know she's only 4'11". They're quite surprised when I do show up. Um, I usually aid a lot of bounty hunting agencies, uh, bondsmen um, that have already, you know, that are working on cases that need uh, skip work done to locate their fugitives. And I usually take over when they've already exhausted all their means or exhausted as many agencies as possible. You have a company called Unlimited Recoveries. You do like to specialize in these hard-to-locate recoveries and cases that others can't solve. Tell us a little bit about how you get involved in skip tracing specifically. This is finding people or things that have disappeared on purpose. Uh, A lot of times, as you mentioned, somebody will contact you saying, we need help tracking this thing down, and that's where you step in. How do you get involved in this? Well, pretty much I get recommended by word of mouth. Um, I am well-known throughout the world, and I do get uh, requests from uh, places such as Dubai, Canada, Australia, you know, everywhere. And it is overwhelming, but I get referred by word of mouth as well. And they are the cases that are hard to locate. They are either cold cases or they're extreme uh, cases where 
the jump is, is fresh. The asset is fresh where they need to be located for court dates. How, how did you get started, a, though? Because, I mean, not a lot of people say, you know what? I want to be a bounty hunter or I want to, I want to be a skip tracer. How, how did you come into the field? How did you start this out? Well, back in 2000, 2001, I would say, um, I was introduced into the world of skip tracing. Unfortunately, it was not a good uh, way of breaking into the skip tracing world. Um, I was in a domestic uh, situation myself or my, or my ex-boyfriend. He hurt me. Um, he hit me and I, Took it one time, pressed charges. The person who aided me introduced me to the world of skip tracing and the repossession company. And that's when the world of skip tracing opened up to me. And I honed a skill that I never knew I had. I thought skip tracing was illegal. Like, what is that? I mean, the word even sounds illegal, <laughs> you know? Does, and yeah. I was like, what is skip tracing? <laughs> I went. I opened my mind to something new. I already had a job in, a, in a, an attorney's office in a law firm. And I said, well, if you can match my rate, I'm in. And I was introduced. I was trained by somebody very good. And 16 years later, I have unlimited recovery. Tell us some of the methods of a skip tracer. I mean, you're almost like a detective. You're, you're, you really are a detective. Um, and yes. One of the methods uh, you mentioned is it's all about the SITs which SITS, Shelter, Income, Transportation, and Social Contact. These are the primary ways you track some, someone down with. Yes, we all need shelter. Either it be a nice home, a box, little hideout, or whatever. We all need shelter in some format. So we, I always try to hone in on where they're going to be at, who's, who's helping them, who's providing shelter for the fugitive. Um, income, either help from a family, somebody's aiding them, somebody's uh, protecting them. Um, transportation. They're either jumping on a bus, a taxi, bike, or on foot. Somebody's helping them with transportation. And there's social media outfit. You know, they're always involved with social media. But some of these fugitives are already on the run. They don't want to be on the social media platforms. But each one of us, I'm talking about each one of us in this whole world, we all have a SIT program. But these people that I go after, they're in a different platform. They're way ahead of the agencies that are looking for them, they're way ahead of us in the matter of income, of how they're going to make money, who's going to also take them from point A to point B. Again, we all have a SIPS program. It's just, can you identify yours? Right. If somebody were to locate you, how would they locate you? Have you ever thought about that? I'm probably pretty easy to find based off of the podcast and all my <laughs> social media stuff. So I, I well, we all have to be careful how we um, display our SITS program, right? Because uh, one of these days, you know, many of us can be on the run. <laughs> I hope, <laughs> I hope that you, Michelle Gomez, are not after me one day. Let's talk no. about let's talk about Ryan Mullen. He was on the FBI's most wanted list in 1999, and I'm sure you have a ton of amazing stories. But this is, has has to be one of the top gets. Uh, you know, he was on the run for a long time. He was accused of stealing a huge yacht, uh, stealing millions of dollars. Uh, tell us about him and how you tracked him down. Well, Ryan Mullen was one of my big cases, um, but this one was special. As I was doing my investigation, I realized that he was in a, a form of a triangle. He had help. And when you're in a crime or you're involved with a crime, you always have legs that help you. And I call them legs because those are the people that aid you in your crime. 
and they're probably also profiting uh, from the involvement as well. But as I drew closer to him, I realized that there was money involved, and money is at the end of all evil there. Exactly. Um, he had people um, in the mm-hmm. uh, a logo outfit. He had somebody involved with that, somebody that had a lot of resources on the ground in Louisiana. So I began digging and digging and digging. I mean, I turned over every rock possible. And in investigations, you have to do your due diligence. Even if you come into a dead end, you got to go over that sheet and, and see what you miss because we all miss things. We're not perfect. I was determined to find this guy. I was determined to find everybody involved with his crime. And my goal was to find the yacht. I went through Noah. I went through all the harbor masters. I went through everything. I was already drawing close to where he was at. I said, okay, he has to be here because according to the harbor master, there was a last fuel uh, drop. And then I traced that fuel drop back to somebody. I'm very good at solving puzzles. So with that skill and putting things together uh, through my engineering background, I was not going to let it beat me, you know. Michelle, that that puzzle solving thing really came in, in handy because part of the problem with tracking Ryan Mullen down was that he was using a ton of different aliases, names that were yeah. slightly different. So it was hard to pinpoint him. Uh, you know, as you're mentioning the SITS program, it was hard to uh, pinpoint him anywhere because the aliases were slightly different. All over slightly the same. Place. Exactly. So that was one of the things that was frustrating in tracking him down. Well, I had a lot of SITS for him. <laughs> um, I was able to locate him in the Bayou Tesh at a plantation with a very wealthy man. And I, as I approached the location, I spotted the boat, the yacht, and called the police. It was, it was an exciting day for everyone, but mostly for my client. You know, we got, he got his asset back. The, the company got the asset back. And um, along the means of that, he was there. And he tried to uh, change his name in front of me. You know, he's like, that's my picture, but that's not my name. And what? I'm like, well, which name is it, Ryan? You go by so many. When he knew he was caught, what was his reaction? He looked relieved, like a big sigh came out of him, like it, it was it was over, like he was like he was tired of running. Wow! You know, sometimes these fugitives that get caught, like they just like, okay, I can sleep now. Yeah, I mean, they're always looking over the shoulder, uh, hoping that they're not going to get caught. I mean, it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating job, and, and I could talk to you forever about this. We're actually going to be seeing a lot more of you. You're currently working on two projects right now. Uh, some documentaries and some other stuff uh, based on your life and, and the work that you do. When when can we expect to see some of these? Uh, very soon. We're in production already. I'm going to be flying out to a location. Let's just say I can give this name out, New Mexico. Wow. And um, I'm very excited to do this project. It's just, they're cold cases of about 60 murders that took place. And I'm looking to um, find some bones in the ground. And that's about as much I can tell you. I mean, that really is amazing. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michelle Gomez, uh, one of the best skip tracers in the world, mother bounty hunter, the whole nine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for calling. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the daily dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on Twitter and daily dive podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.